Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. I'm very pleased to welcome to the Core Principles Podcast a man whom Rush Limbaugh said is, quote, running the White House, unquote, and of whom the president himself has said, quote, he's doing an amazing job. He's built one of the most powerful youth organizations ever created, unquote. So I'm very thankful for the opportunity to talk with the founder and president of Turning Point USA, Charlie Kirk. How are you, Charlie? I'm great. Honored to be here. Thanks so much. So why did you take on this project, Turning Point USA, and and how have you accomplished what you've done? Well, first of all, honored to be here. Thank you. Uh, Started this eight years ago. I started Turning Point USA with my uh, my mentor, uh, Bill Montgomery, who unfortunately just passed away recently. And thank you for your comments on that before we got started. Yes. And hope to carry on his legacy every day. Uh, Started it uh, instead of going to college and... uh, Saw a great uh, opportunity, I guess you could say, an opening to educate our generation around first principles of freedom and liberty and uh, the Constitution and self-reliance and uh, making good choices and seeing your life improve as a byproduct, byproduct of it. And also talking how our country is the greatest country ever to exist in the history of the world, about how our country is a country that uh, needs to be really defended and better understood and so started it eight years ago in June of 2012, and we're now on 2,000 high school and college campuses across the country. Uh, we're on pace to hit 1,000 high school chapters, which is unbelievable. And as many of your listeners have probably seen, we've reached millions and millions of people on social media. So super blessed to be in it. It's a tough fight, but uh, we embrace it every single day. So I perceive from my vantage point just out here as a concerned citizen who loves this country and I'm cheering you on, I perceive that this resistance to those core principles uh, that you champion on college campuses, or as Limbaugh would call them, uh, college campi, that this resistance is getting more aggressive against those principles. Am I correct about that or is that a misperception? No, that is exactly right. Uh, These college campuses have become islands of totalitarianism. They have become places of ideological fascism, that if you do not conform to their very specific leftist dogmatic perspective, then all of a sudden you get ridiculed, you get attacked, they will come after you personally, and they are going to try to destroy your life. And so we talk about this all the time at Turning Point and the work that we are doing is the need for an actual marketplace of ideas a need for um, differing opinions to be able to be expressed and to hurt and be heard. Um, college campuses are not what a lot of parents think they are. A lot of parents think that college campuses are a place where students go to be more, get more mature and they hear the other side. Unfortunately, that is not the case. College campuses have become the exact opposite. They've become indoctrination camps where students are being taught and instructed to be angry, to be bitter, to be unthankful, to have no gratitude for the greatest country ever to exist in the history of the world. And, you know, we push back against this very assertively. I have visited probably more college campuses personally than almost any other person in the entire conservative community. I could probably say that pretty confidently. I mean, I've been to Stanford, UCLA, Berkeley, University of Texas, Austin, um, Northwestern, you name it. I mean, there's a school that's probably in the news. I probably have either visited it or I'd be very well aware of it. I could tell you that what is coming next in our country is very concerning. We have a very bitter, arrogant, and resentful generation that 
generally, not all of it, because there's a lot of conservatives rising up, but generally they have no appreciation for the sacrifices that were made before them, the civilization that was built that gave them the freedom to be foolish, and quite honestly, the, the potential that they could succeed if they just embraced first freedoms. So this is what we're fighting every single day. Now, you mentioned uh, several colleges of note, and one of them was Berkeley. Now, I went to the Air Force Academy, so I didn't get liberal indoctrination. There you go. But uh, thinking of Berkeley, previous generation saw Berkeley as the home of the free speech movement. And now we see, I'm sure uh, he must be a friend of yours. Uh, We're all cheering him on as well, Ben Shapiro. Uh, when he was going to go to Berkeley, and you may have experienced something similar, that they torched things and turned over cars and said, we cannot allow this young person on our campus to tell us things that we don't want to hear. And the mayor cheered them on. What What is that about? Berkeley is no longer, I mean, it was once the home of freedom of speech and not anymore. It's now the death of freedom of speech in our country. So yeah, I visited, I didn't have as bad of a backlash as Shapiro. Uh, Ben's a dear friend. He does a great job. And uh, I'll tell you that when we, we had a Turning Point USA chapter leader that was slugged in the face, you might remember this video back in February of last year, Hayden Williams wearing a socialism suck shirt or Turning Point jersey. And he was just kind of canvassing around and boom, gets smacked right in the face. And that actually started a discussion around freedom of speech on campuses all across the country. It was a viral moment and it actually inspired the president to sign a long overdue executive order on freedom of speech on college campuses. So look, we are fighting this every single day. Berkeley is a place that if you want your child to hate America, send them to the University of California at Berkeley. They specialize in America hatred. They are experts at getting people to have ingratitude about the United States. And so, you know, we have to be, I think, more clear and more honest about this as we talk about these sorts of things. Now, there's two major competing economic models that have fought for generations, uh, supply side, largely capitalism, demand side, Marxism, socialism. And we've seen, obviously, uh, those of us who look at reality, see the success of the supply side economic model because it's based on assumptions that actually are true. Why does Marxism uh, or any other leftist ideology appeal to young people particularly? It's a great point. And the main point is that Marxist Marxist thinking is not actually rooted in economics. And that's a very important uh, admission that the left will never make. Marxist, Marxist thinking is not an economic school of thought. It is a cultural, philosophical observation that gets so much wrong about human nature. The leading assumption of Marxism, the leading assumption is that human beings can be perfected through government action, that, that the society around us is actually broken, but we are actually pretty good. Um, this, the capitalist free market assumption is actually the opposite. It's that we're probably pretty awful by nature. It's a Christian actual observation. Um, and that since we're so awful, what do we have to do to be able to make things less awful? Well, private property, competition, keep people within some guardrails, by having to create something of value. So maybe your bitter, awful existence might be a little less bitter and awful if you actually have to open up a shop to be able to provide something meaningful to your community, right? And of course, that system is not without its flaws because human beings are not without its flaws. But Marxists, they don't agree with any of that. Nothing that they profess actually fits within the laws or the rules of economics at all whatsoever. 
And if you're going to go up against the rules of economics, you better have a really good reason. And sometimes those reasons are fine. Like, for example, we decide not to trade with countries that want to blow us off the face of the earth. That that might not be doctrinaire market economics. I support those tariffs or those sanctions, but you must have a really good reason for it. The Marxists don't. Their reason is rooted in envy and greed and spite, arrogance that the system around them must be completely torn down. And because of that, uh, you can see what ends up happening is they think they can abolish hierarchies. They think they can get rid of the, what really separates us, you know, they're so focused on inequality. And, I, and as a conservative, I actually think that we need to talk more about why some people are being left behind because of government. I'm not opposed to that. But they think that no, they think no inequality should exist. And that's outrageous. That's stupid. Um, and when that ends up happening is you end up getting Joseph Stalin, who controls everything. And the rest of the country basically has no opportunity to be able to rise up from their, you know, basically surf existence. And so yeah, look, you say it aptly and you say it correctly. The Marxists are professional political hacks that use people's desire to either want something they themselves can't get. They use their desire to try to destroy something around them that they otherwise couldn't uh, through this kind of communist Marxist ideology. This newsworthy group, you call them BLM Inc. Uh, they use the unassailable true term uh, and statement Black Lives Matter as their name of their organization. But their organization very explicitly doesn't have much at all to do with that. It has to do with Marxist ideology. My question for you, Charlie Kirk, is uh, do you think that America will turn against them as a Marxist movement as more people become aware of what they're really about? Or have they put their roots in deeply and are they going to cause a lot more trouble? Yeah, I think that their approval ratings are going down. I was beating the drum to actually stop calling them by a ostensibly true phrase, Black Lives Matter, instead call them by BLM or BLM Inc. I think their numbers have gone down once that shift has actually happened because then people were able to separate the organization from the phrase because we have to separate a phrase from a sinister movement. Right. And that's a very important distinction, because if we're going to ask people the phrase, well, then almost all Americans are going to agree with the phrase. Of course. But the movement, the, the movement is a disintegrationist movement. It's deconstructionist. It's using the phrase as a as a shield against criticism, a shield against any sort of backlash for what they actually want to do. And what they want to do is destroy the American family. And they've already done that in most black communities where 77% of black children are born without a father in the home. They want to abolish prisons. They want to abolish police. And they want to sow racial hatred. BLM Inc., they are making hundreds of millions of dollars by trying to turn people against each other based on our immutable characteristics and the color of their skin. That is immoral. I, I don't want to ever say anything nice about an organization that wants to do that. I think you've seen people like Senator Mike Braun, who's a Republican and others backtrack when they said nice things about BLM Inc. for good reason, because any organization that is a fundamental Marxist organization where their founder says, we are trained Marxist. Well, that should be very widespread popular in our country. So I think it's turning, to be honest with you. Uh, public polling reflects this. They were high 60s in their public approval early on. Now they're low 40s, it's been a 20 point dip. And I think it should keep on going down. And I just want to make it explicitly clear for Media Matters watching this. I do believe that Black Lives Matter. I do believe all lives matter. When I criticize is the organization that actually I don't think even believes that. I think that the organization actually takes exception 
and they cherry pick certain tragedies to be able to fit their very anti-American, anti-Western worldview. The analogy I use, Charlie, is the gangs of note in Los Angeles that use the name the Bloods and the Crips. If they were to mm-hmm. suddenly change their names to Sunshine and Puppies, well, when they go stabbing each other in the throat, that doesn't make it all Sunshine and Puppies. Right. It's still a bad action. Well, I want to talk to you just for a moment about social media. People are interacting more and more virtually. And this trend was before coronavirus. Uh, It's just something that's happening. How is Turning Point USA effectively leveraging social media? I think we do it probably better than most organizations out there. We reach millions and millions of people. Our combined following from my personal following and Turning Point USA is well over six and a half million to seven million followers at this account engagements and retweets and shares. Uh, we, we, we put out some of the top tier content out there on YouTube and on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. We recognize these tech companies are against us. I speak out against that all the time. Uh, but Turning Point USA, we have shifted very successfully online and virtually online chapter meetings, more videos than ever before. I'm doing two podcasts a day uh, to be able to get the word out. And I think it's very important that we are, uh, we're able to fight effectively on these matters. Well, that's uh, extraordinary. I'm cheering you on. And of course, uh, you've done me a, a great favor to appear on this little podcast. If you link it. Oh, it's great. If you link it to some of your six and a half million followers, I might get a few more listens. Well, President Trump has uh, sought to help Americans avoid sort of the corporate censorship. And I understand philosophically, I agree with the idea that the government is the only true censor authority. But when you have basically utilities like Twitter and Facebook, mm that can deny service because they disagree with the message being stated. Um, I wanted to ask you about the president's approach to alter the application of the 1996 Telecommunications Act. He mentioned uh, Section 230. Listeners may not know exactly what it's like, but the analogy would be you don't want the phone company to be liable for something that somebody says on the phone, and you don't want Twitter or Facebook to be liable for some hateful thing that somebody might say on their platform. But you wouldn't want the phone company to cut off your service because you said, hey, I'm going to vote for Trump this year. So do you agree or disagree with the approach that the president is taking? Or do you have a different approach that you would recommend, Charlie? Yeah, I agree with it. I do. I would go even further. Look, I'm a free market capitalist. We just talked about this earlier in the program. I love liberty. I love freedom. I think that human beings have a right to be free. It's a natural God-given right. And so when anything, whether it be a person or a government or a company, infringes on first principles, I speak out against it. So when Google starts to act like a government, a tyrannical government, and starts to shut people up, I'm not going to just say like, oh, that's the free market, leave them alone. Now, if they were just like a local gym, okay, fine, whatever. But they control 92% of all search results on the planet, let alone in our country. That's the power a government wishes they would have. I mean, So I think we have to look at Google as a government. And I know that's an uncomfortable conversation for conservatives. We have principles and then we have exceptions for them, right? So the principles are we want free people to trade freely outside of government intervention and that will improve people's lives. I think this is an exception. I think we we have an exception here where because of technology and because of their ability to leverage the Communications Act, as you mentioned, uh, Section 230, which lets them operate as a platform, not a publisher and away from immunity, Basically, it's a government-created regulation that has given Google insane amounts of incumbent advantages that we as a country have to have a conversation of why is it that we are conservatives? 
we are conservatives and we, we believe in limited government because we love liberty, right? Yes. But if we believe in limited government and we love liberty, shouldn't we also be worried if a, if a company starts being more powerful than our government? And I understand that's an uncomfortable conversation. I encourage conservatives, though, to liberate their minds a little bit and just, for, just let your mind go there outside of all the traps that we have built into us, right? Socialism. We can't talk about that. Like, oh, okay, okay, I get it. I got it. I've been through all of that. I've done some very deep thinking about this. I, I really believe that it is time, and I, I don't say this lightly, that we look at either repealing Section 230, looking at the antitrust legislation, because I don't want to live in a country where an outside company where I do not have due process rights, I cannot sue them. We don't know who controls them. All of a sudden can eliminate me from speaking. That's a really scary, I don't want to live in that country. In fact, I think the government is probably the biggest abuser of human rights today. Of course it is. And, but the one thing about our government, I've seen people successfully sue our government and win. I've seen it. I have. It's a long, drawn-out process. It's bitter. It's awful. They'll try and destroy your life, but you can win. You can't win against Google. They just say, private company, they throw out your lawsuit. That's very dangerous. And I think that we have to get very serious about it. And so I've gone as far to say that I think it's time at least on their search engine side, to break it up. I don't think 92% of Silicon Valley elites, I don't think they should control 92% of search results. I don't. I think it's bad for liberty. I understand. And of course, uh, they control YouTube as well. And so That's right. uh, between them and Facebook and Twitter, so much of people's communication tools now are in the hands of so few. And if anybody doubts the impact that they can have, a recent example proves the incredible impact they have group of doctors decides to say, you know, we've tested a prescription protocol successfully. Google, Facebook, Twitter all say, we do not want that information to be shared and they make it go away. That's incredible. Now along those lines, but from a different perspective, we have a lot more access now, Charlie, to actual news via audio and video. Everybody's got their cell phone with them all the time. Uh, and everybody is a publisher, even within the limits of uh, YouTube and so forth. Why do you suppose so many Americans are still susceptible to fake news when we can see it? So the riots that have been happening, you get a congressman saying it's a myth, like Baghdad Bob standing in front of a burning building saying that isn't really happening. How do so many people still fall for fake news? Because it's dressed up so nicely. <laughs> you watch CNN and it looks real. I mean, it's programmed and to hypnotize you and to kind of put you into a propaganda circle and cycle. And all of a sudden you don't, it's hard to break free of that because it's so nice with their graphics and their ticker. And you're like, Oh wow, it must be true. When in reality, they're just outright lying to you. Um, and it's so Orwellian is what's happening. And so I really encourage everyone listening to this to go find your own sources, double check them, find independent journalists. A lot of time, those people are onto something that the media isn't. And if the media is trying to tell you something so forcefully, just ask the question why. Sometimes, I mean, of course, sometimes they're going to stumble backwards into something. I mean, that's fine. But most of the time, the media has an agenda. Think no differently of the media than a Democrat activist. It's no different. They're just using their position of power to try to persuade you to give them more power. I, I think it's very important we push back against it. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. The last question I wanted to ask you before you go 
um, and it ties right into what you were saying. Do you have recommendations for your listeners to uh, some sources that you like that you turn to that are good? Yeah, I like justthenews.com. It's John Solomon's new uh, news site. Don't really use Drudge Report anymore. It kind of gets me very depressed. I don't like their direction. Love Breitbart, love Daily Caller. Uh, Your listeners can go to charliekirk.com. We have a lot of links that we like on there. Um, And so, yeah, those are some some good sites that I like to use. Um, And I read the other side and I, I I like to see the nonsense that they're peddling. And then I kind of move on. Once again, thank you so much, Charlie, for joining me today. I want to God encourage you, everybody to go to uh, the Turning Point website at tpusa.com slash donate. You can find ways to support this. Uh, it's a 501c3 organization, and it's a, a great one to support. They really are changing the landscape for the better. So Charlie Kirk, thank you and God bless you. Thank you, man. God bless. Talk to you soon. Now it's time for our special historical segment, featuring a practical example of how core principles are applied. On the 18th of August, 1976, two officers of the United States Army, Captain Arthur Boniface and First Lieutenant Mark Barrett, were pruning a poplar tree in the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. The reason they had to take access to that tree's limbs was that when the branches and foliage got too broad, soldiers at other stations could not check in on the well-being of the position known as the loneliest outpost in the world. That outpost is at the end of the Bridge of No Return, the link between South Korea and North Korea. Whenever such maintenance was being done in the joint security area, the security forces always gave the North Koreans advanced notice, so there would be no misunderstandings about what was happening. Therefore, the North Koreans knew why the two army officers were there pruning the tree. But a group of North Korean soldiers attacked and followed their commander's orders to kill the Americans. They butchered the U.S. Army officers with the axes they were using to prune the tree. North Korea has resources and could be a thriving nation, but they are ruled by a leftist, and they are therefore oppressed and starving. Just across the dividing line, the citizens of South Korea have a measure of liberty, and they are therefore productive and a welcome participant in the community of nations worldwide. Our relationships with our government authorities are not like our relationships with Almighty God. In our relationship with government, independence is a prerequisite for liberty. Only with God, whose ways are not like our ways, can dependence go with true liberty and peace. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.